Welcome to Computer Game Evolution, a podcast about the evolution of computer games. Episode 2.3, A Platonic Ideal. As I said last time, the system I'm about to talk about is kinda obscure. On the plus side, over the past 10 or so years, it has been rediscovered, there's an emulator, it's far easier to find footage of it in action, descriptions of games, interviews, and a really good source on its origins and the people involved is a book published in 2017. It's not the ultimate exhaustive source, and I have found things it doesn't cover to add to the narrative, better game details in a few cases, but it is an excellent book, and you should go get it. The Friendly Orange Glow by Brian Deere. This story, like many other computer stories, starts in the 50s. And I'll start it with the US Navy. We already know about one of its radical projects from the time, the DASH system for outfitting ships with helicopter drones, but other creative concepts were tried out as well. One guy, a physicist from Illinois, put forward an idea to install computers on ships to help with traffic control and signal processing, analyzing the data coming in from radars and other sensors. The Navy liked the proposal and funded its research and development at the Control Systems Laboratory of the University of Illinois, surrounded by endless cornfields. CSL was a highly secretive facility funded by Army, Navy and Air Force grants established after the start of the Korean War. The University of Illinois was the first American educational institution to get a computer of its own. They had made a computer for the Army and in return asked the government to pay for another unit the university could keep. That's how the ILIAC, Illinois Automatic Computer, came to be in 52. Then a navy came, lured in by the computer-on-a-ship pitch, and brought some more money, which was immediately put to use to build a strong team of researchers and buy fancy hardware many other places could only dream of. It didn't take too long for the engineers and physicists running the show at CSL to realize that while computers could do magic when it came to signal processing, sticking one into every single ship was not possible. A 50s computer was a vacuum tube monstrosity with an insatiable appetite for electric power. The only kind of ship capable of supporting that would be an aircraft carrier. So the concept, dubbed Project Cornfield, developed into having a single computer inside the fleet carrier process all the data received from escorting ships. And data coming from different sources and different sensors could be collated so that when an unknown thing enters the area, Instead of one ship seeing it as a radar blip and some plane detecting it as a source of emissions, you'd get a compound contact on your screen, tagged with everything known about it by everyone information, with its exact position, speed and possible type automatically determined by the machine. Sounds good, right? There's a problem. Computers in the 50s were simple machines designed to either receive data, process data, or put data out but not all three at the same time. And you know, it was difficult to make Soviet submarines show up when you had your fleet set up ready to receive. So the team at CSL had to devise a brand new system that could just run continuously and allow input and output at multiple stations whenever you needed it. Some of you may be thinking, isn't it a bit like time-sharing? Yes, it was time-sharing, except time-sharing hadn't been officially invented yet. 
The work and project Cornfield continued for a few years, and they were even thinking of using it not just to track contacts, but to engage them, to send out orders. I want that thing blasted with the biggest thing you've got. But... The Navy felt that relying on a single computer inside the most obvious target in any fleet was not an ideal distribution of eggs to baskets. Then the Sputnik thing happened, everyone's priorities shifted, and Project Cornfield was abandoned. But that's not to say the Navy didn't like the idea in principle, since with the rise of transistor technologies of the 60s, it did implement most of Cornfield in its naval tactical data system, with one major difference. NTDS did not rely on a single mainframe and was managed by computers on every ship. Now, as we know, education became a priority after Sputnik, so in 58 there was a big conference, the art and science of automatic teaching of verbal and symbolic skills, where Pressy, Skinner and Crowder were all attending, and a team from IBM presented their findings from experiments with a mock-up of a teaching computer. Turned out, the computer was mostly waiting for the student to do something. Maybe there was a better way of doing things. Maybe it could deal with multiple students at the same time? Now, had they known about Cornfield, time-sharing may have been adopted in education right then and there, but they didn't know. Nobody was supposed to know. Everything CSL did was classified. Its researchers not only didn't publish papers, but even had to leave all their work on site, locked up in safes. Luckily, this was about to change. Late in 57, CSL got a new boss, Daniel Alpert. Well, he did not become the boss immediately, though he was hired to lead the lab. And once he did, he started steering the facility in the direction of research you could show to people without committing treason. In 59, as the American scientific community was abuzz with talk of programmed learning and teaching computers, Alpert and his colleagues saw it as a golden opportunity to get his lab a different kind of work and a new source of funding. Naturally, before they would do anything, they had to decide what to do, and for that purpose, they formed a committee. It was a wonderful, glorious committee made up of psychologists, educators and CSL engineers, all with skills and knowledge relevant to the nationwide issue. Then they actually met. And it turned out that the psychologists wanted to talk about their latest theories and cutting-edge concepts, the educators stuck to what had been working so far, and neither of the two groups could pick a subject to teach first, nor knew anything about computers, which was a bit of a bummer since the engineers needed concise objectives and specific problems to solve, because they're engineers, they're trained to solve. After enduring the heat of this dumpster fire for weeks, Alpert and a few of his colleagues decided sod the committee. CSL would make the teaching computer themselves. Of course, without all those other specialists, the lab would need a true miracle of a person to lead that project, an engineer aware of and interested in the challenges of education, and capable of delivering something before any major funding was available. Albert knew just the guy. The guy was Donald Bitzer, and he worked right there at CSL. Bitzer was in his mid-twenties and had just gotten his PhD. He did not seem like a guy to replace a whole committee, but he was a chronic overachiever, interested in education, and incredibly frugal to the point of driving a car with the bottom so rusted out you could see the road looking down. Also, Don Bitzer had a secret superpower. 
Donald came from a family that ran a car dealership. He was expected to continue the business and one day was sent to take some engineering classes to know how a car operates to talk the talk to customers. Don realized he liked engineering, taking things apart, making things, creating things, way more than selling them, which set him up to go get a proper engineering education. He was impressed by his carburetor class teacher too, and it made Don pay attention to teaching techniques. And that's how an engineer with an interest in education appeared. However, as years went by, many of those who knew him would begin to notice that there was something of a used car salesman in that Don Bitzer guy. An engineer with the power of an unstoppable, arrogant pitch. And unlike Steve Jobs, Bitzer was good at engineering. Now that Alpert had his man, and the man was willing to try his hand at developing a teaching machine, it was time for CSL to tell the committee, thank you very much, get lost. As the first programmer on the project, Peter Braunfeld, explained it, the theory was, A, here we are at a university, so by definition we know how to educate, and B, we know how to do what was in those days called real-time data processing. End quote. While point B was undoubtedly true, it's what Project Cornfield was all about, I'm sure many teachers would roll their eyes at point A. CSL's Educational Machine Project was officially announced by Alpert on June 3, 1960. It would be led by Donald Bitzer, his coursemate Wayne Lichtenberger would be a technician, and Peter Braunfeld would do the programming. Also hanging out with them was Chalmers Sherwin, the guy who had the idea to make a teaching machine at CSL in the first place. The team would get a shoestring budget to deliver something worth showing to secure further funding. The name of the project came from Bitzer, Programmed Logic for Automated Teaching Operations. But then Braunfeld, who was a mathematician and a chess player, said, no, automated means self-mated. Change it to automatic. The abbreviation didn't change, though, and remained PLATO. The first iteration of the system, soon to be known as PLATO-1, was put together in a few months. The idea was to build a unit for a single student and then expand. They had all their secret drafts from Cornfield on hand, and they were already seeing students as an equivalent of enemy airplanes. At some level of abstraction, they are. You never know when they're going to show up, when they'll disappear again, and when they'll drop their payload onto your desk, and what it is going to be. Usually, they come in waves at the end of the term. So, with this in mind, Bitzer drafted a schematic of how Plato should operate. There was a student poking a key set with a finger, and from that input device, a long arrow went to a computer. From the computer, two arrows went to a slide selector and a storage device. Both send their arrows into a TV display, sitting right in front of the student. So it was a computer terminal, with a screen, years before they became commonplace. You may be curious about that slide selector, though. The idea was that the system would rely both on images generated by the computer and slides. Computer images would be primarily the numbers and letters the student was typing in, and they had to appear on the screen immediately. And as for the slides, they were regular slides. And in the early days, the slide selector was human. A technician sitting in a separate room, who on receiving a request for a particular slide, would find it and scan it with a camera. 
a TV camera of some kind, I presume. Later, they automated the system, much to the technician's relief. The image of the slide would then meet and merge with whatever graphics the computer had generated in the storage device, and this one warrants a closer look. The device they used originally was a Raytheon QK685 recording storage tube. I found the manufacturer's datasheet for it. It was another vacuum tube, kind of like an old TV set, but tiny. In fact, the origins of the technology have an overlap with the invention of television. Imagine you have a CRT display bulb, but instead of looking at the screen, you cover it with a big electrode. When the electron beam draws an image on the screen, that's when you are writing to the memory. The stored data would be even visible as the afterglow of the phosphor excited by stuck electrons. In TV sets, they try to prevent the build-up of a charge on the surface, because otherwise the images wouldn't go away, but storage tubes were made to get the electrons to stick around for as long as possible unless it was flushed or erased. For reading data of a QK685, you were supposed to scan it with a low-voltage beam and monitor the electrode covering the screen. The intensity of the beam changed as it passed through charged and neutral areas, and you could tell what was stored where. You could use it to store any data, best of all, a picture. It could work as a frame buffer. Some of you may be wondering why this technology wasn't used in the late 70s when so many game consoles suffered from tiny frame buffers. The tubes were slow, imprecise, had a short lifespan, and were outrageously expensive. This is where some of you may ask how Bitzer and the gang got to use something expensive while working on a shoestring budget. They used the tubes because CSL had piles of them left over from the Cornfield project. They were supposed to store images of radar contacts and were bought with Navy money. When the Navy quit, the tubes stayed. Basically free. Basically free was the expected cost of the hardware. The TV display was a tube ripped out of a broken TV set, and the key set was a handmade box offering just enough buttons to put in numbers or pick answers in multiple-choice questions. But because it was custom-made, it had a great new feature. Imagine you are sitting at a terminal looking at a problem you can't solve. You feel like you've missed something, maybe there's a detail that's supposed to help you, but you happen to skip that class. Unfortunately, you need to solve this one. What do you do? Do you ask the teacher? Yes, and Plato is the teacher. On the key set, there was a button labeled HELP. If you pressed it, the screen would switch from showing you the problem to showing you the material you needed to know to solve the problem. Read it? Got it? Press the button labeled AHA to go back to the question. Obviously, if you were stuck on a different problem, the HELP button took you to different study material. In later iterations of Plato, they'd get rid of the AHA button, since it was a touch redundant, but HELP would stay. Every program, every lesson, every game for Plato was expected to come with a HELP system, and not just a single block of text, but many, each relevant to what the user was seeing on the screen the moment they pressed HELP. It's what they call context-sensitive help today, and Plato had it since the first 1960 prototype. 
help was available even for the most basic system functions. Plato was designed as a teaching machine that could first and foremost teach the student how to use itself. And sometimes it's not the students who needed help, but the teachers. Is a question too hard or too easy? Is the study material sufficiently clear? Plato could assist with that too, as it was logging how long everyone took to solve a problem, what buttons they pressed, how correct they were, how much they asked for help. It collected statistics, metrics you could later analyze. So, a handmade keyboard, a junk TV set, a man with a pile of slides, and high-end storage tubes from a company mostly known for its products killing people, were connected to an eight-year-old computer, and it became the original Plato. The next step was to connect two students to the same computer, so around December 1960, Bitzer drafted Plato II. While that was going on, he was also working on demonstrations. One of those was held in March 1961, 30 miles away from the lab. The keyset was connected to Iliac by a phone line, and the video signal going the other way was broadcast using a university TV station. The part of the student poking the keyset was played by a graduate student. At this point, CSL already had enough material to patent timesharing, and they did try to, but apparently no one at the University of Illinois knew how to file an application properly, so they lost it, and found it again only a few years later, and by then it was already too late and MIT and Dartmouth had stolen all the glory. Still, I'm going to reach into an imaginary bucket and award these two honorary Beaten by Plato badges. We'll make good use of this bucket in later seasons. Around 62, the lab finally replaced the positively ancient Iliac with a new computer. They wanted one from the Control Data Corporation, CDC, but you gotta pretend you gotta have bidding. So, CDC's bid was, we'll get you a computer for a million dollars. The next best bid was from IBM, a computer for nearly two million dollars. These two go into the next round of bidding, CDC repeats that they do it for a million, and IBM says... 800,000. This is when the lab, like many dealing with IBM, smelled a rat. After some arguing, the two companies were told to submit their bids again, the correct bids, please. CDC again asked for a million, what else? While IBM's new offer was $200,000 for the exact same computer they'd priced at 2 million. You don't say, goes CSL, and ends up with a CDC computer and a deep distrust for IBM. Donald Bitzer, of course, succeeded in getting some new computer time, even though Plato was still underfunded and far from a top priority. At that time, Peter Braunfeld was splitting from the project over some differences, so Bitzer asked a new programmer, Andy Hansen, to do a simple impossible thing program a multitasking operating system capable of supporting up to 32 users at the same time. Andy Hansen was 19. But he came from a flock of engineering high schoolers, boys and girls, Bitzer had brought up over the previous few years as future custodians of Plato, so Andy did write the operating system, which, together with the new computer, became the core of Plato 3 until the early 70s when Plato 4 came along. That one was expected to support up to 4,000 users. Meanwhile, CSL engineers were hard at work upgrading the terminals. 
The TV sets with storage tubes were costly both in terms of money and the amount of data they needed to operate. Blater begged for streamlined digital displays and some kind of new video memory system, possibly magical because regular RAM at the time cost $2 per bit. After some research, they learned about experimental work done in a company called Lear Ziegler. It was, unsuccessfully, trying to build a compact plasma display. Their plan was to have two thin sheets of glass with many wires running through them, horizontally in one sheet and vertically in the other. Between the sheets there was a ceramic plate with holes in it, and those holes were filled with neon. If you applied voltage to one vertical and one horizontal wire, the hole over which the two intersected would power up and glow orange like a tiny neon sign. The CSL team liked the concept because there was also talk of using similar plasma cells as memory units, so if they could pull it off, the screen itself would be the video memory. Think of the savings. Of course, the catch was that no one at CSL knew much about plasma or vacuum, but they were learning, experimenting, reading papers. They even ran into some late 50s patents issued to a guy named... Uh, Douglas Engelbart. Yes, that Douglas Engelbart. After months of work and a happy accident with neon contamination, the team got a single functioning plasma display memory cell. One pixel. A fully detailed patent application was immediately filed in 65 and took so long to process that the patent was issued only in 71. But when it was... Money from various manufacturers of plasma displays, American and Japanese, monochrome and color, started coming into the university, and some of it even reached the inventors. Donald Bitzer, Robert Wilson, and Hiram Gene Slotto. But back in 65, CSL had only one pixel. From that they started to scale up while looking for a proper manufacturer. The first industrial prototype was built in 67, but it would take them another four years to reach the required screen resolution of 512 by 512 pixels, glowing or not glowing orange. On the way there, engineers ditched the middle layer with holes in it, since the screen worked perfectly well without it. What it didn't work without was some lighting. Neon needs a few photons already moving through it to start glowing. As the result, Plato's perfectly flat screens would never go truly dark, always greeting users with a faint, friendly orange glow around the edge. And then the users would start poking at them with their fingers, because Bitzer got another squad of young engineers to develop a touchscreen interface, which they did. They stuck an array of infrared LEDs and light detectors in front of the screen, and when your finger obstructed the lights, the system knew roughly where it happened. So, to sum it up, in the early 70s, Plato terminals would be outfitted with flat, monochrome, touch-sensitive plasma displays. Pretty nice, isn't it? Even seeing a prototype in 1968, Alan Curtis K was flawed and started calculating when such displays and integrated circuits would be cheap enough for personal computers. And a few months later, he saw the mother of all demos, and that got him on the path of drafting the Dynabook and developing the modern graphical user interface at Xerox. By the way, Dan Alpert could have become the first head of Xerox Spark. He was the first choice. 
and he could have taken the entire Plato project there with him, but he turned down the offer. As all the hardware magic was getting underway in the mid-60s, new people came in on the software side and introduced a fresh idea. You could not only run classes on the terminals, but also make those classes. Slides? Paper tapes? Nonsense! You've got screens, just draw on them, program the lessons on them. They wrote a few tools to help authors, but still, making lessons, programming them took days, weeks. Until a graduate biology student, Paul Tentzar, got sick of it and made up his own high-level programming language, Tutor, simplifying pages of program code to a few easy-to-understand lines. And then, programs could be saved to a new thing they got in the late 60s, disk drives. Suddenly, not only dedicated engineers could author lessons, but almost everyone. And it was faster. As more Plato 3 terminals were springing up on campus, they began to offer an increasingly diverse library of tests and learning material in all kinds of subjects, from medicine to political science. Around 72, the transition to Plato 4 began. The mainframe was replaced by a genuine supercomputer. Hundreds of new touchscreen plasma displays arrived, assembled at, you're not gonna believe it, Magnavox. All the software had to be rewritten, the lessons needed to be redone, and this time the tutor language was integrated into the system far better. Then it was time to demonstrate the lot to potential buyers. Other universities, the military, NSA and CIA spooks got on the network to try out language learning. Bitzer traveled the world with shows. The only continent where they didn't pitch Plato was Antarctica, it seems. They even showed it off in Moscow in 73, and in the book there is a photo of Paul Tensar with two Russian interpreters. The girls are in plain clothes, so it's hard to tell what rank they hold, but given that the best Soviet foreign language schools had ties either to the diplomatic corps or intelligence, I'm sure Paul was in good hands. Aside from modem connection being interrupted when someone tried to tap the line, the visit went so well they visited Moscow again in 74 with lessons in Russian they showed off to a dude named uh, Boris Yeltsin, a future president. There were sales, so there were multiple Plato mainframes and networks out there in the 70s, but we're going to focus on the original, with its heart in Urbana, and we're finally going to talk games. The warm-up is almost over. Fasten your seatbelts, please. While you're searching for the belts, it's worth noting that the history of Plato's non-educational uses actually starts with activism. In 1970, a couple of political science grad students, Stuart Umpleby and Valerie Lamont, encouraged by their psychology professor, decided to use the lesson system to create lessons not about the present, but about the future. The first attempt was called Delphi, and it was supposed to prophetize the shape of things to come. Instead of improving your knowledge of chemistry or maths, the lesson presented you with major events possible in the near future, offered ways of approaching the situations through social or economic policies, and told you what would happen then, taking you step by step to the incomprehensibly distant year of 2000. It was coming from a computer, but naturally Delphi expressed the political views of its creators. The subject of their next project was much closer to home, Boneyard Creek. 
It was a natural ditch running across the campus, its polluted waters barely visible to the naked eye, but highly offensive to the naked nose. The same 1970, a lesson titled Creek appeared on Plato, and it wasn't made to teach students. It was a call for action, an interactive presentation with photos and texts asking people which way of dealing with the creek they'd pick, and then telling them what the most likely outcome would be. In the meantime, the creators would collect data on user choices and opinions, so it would be like an electronic town hall meeting. Ampleby and Lamont fabricated official-looking invitations to the lab and sent them out to the local press, the mayor's office, senators, etc. A few people showed up, and the reaction from both inside and outside the lab was a unanimous What the hell is that? That's not what Plato is for. Why is a computer telling us what to do? Is it 1984 already? And the lab really hated Creek for how primitive it was. Of course, everyone missed the actual point, and websites with calls to do something for Boneyard Creek still appear, apparently. A few years later, in the autumn of 73, Stuart Umpleby tried to... impeach Richard Nixon. Quite a step up, I know. The lab had both Plato terminals and an ARPANET terminal, and Umpleby used both networks' message board systems to start a discussion of the Watergate scandal. Then he tried to organize a countrywide mass protest rally to help kick the president out of the White House. Remember how ARPANET was a military project and Illinois got military money? Well, it was time for the dudes in Pentagon to go, what the hell is that? Very soon, Don Bitzer got calls warning him that some idiot on two networks had pissed off the Nixon administration, which was at the time busy shutting down unfavorable press. Stewart had to knock it off. In 74, the story leaked to the press, and in short order, no one at the lab wanted to see Ampleby and his big mouth for endangering the future of Plato. Pioneering online political and social activism without stepping on a few toes and rakes was impossible. Speaking of talking to people on Plato, there were many options connecting users across the country without outrageous phone bills. Those were paid by schools and universities. There were message boards, there were real-time group chats, one-on-one chats. A 17-year-old programmed a forum system called Notes, with messages sorted into discussion threads. A chat lesson called Talkomatic let you see other people's messages as they were typing them, letter by letter. Talkomatic got so much use that in late 73 its functions were implemented as a core system feature called Term Talk, letting lesson authors call each other and chat in a small window at the bottom of the screen. And as the concept of user accounts was being figured out, Term Talk would find you at whichever terminal you happened to log in at. It took them another five years to add a Do Not Disturb feature. But they also expanded it into live tech support chat with screen sharing, all in the 70s. One guy, Bruce Parello, started an online newspaper covering current events, movies and everything, and it always knew what people wanted in its two years of operation, because Plato collected all the metrics. Parello also popularized emoticons on the network. Due to some peculiarities in how letters and other characters were drawn on the screen, it was possible to put several characters on top of one another, or rapidly replace them, creating animations. So some Plato smileys were closer to modern emojis. 
As Plato was seeing more activity, there was a certain type of users whose presence was more and more prominent on the network in the late 60s and early 70s. Children. At the time it was still Plato 3 and its security measures were non-existent, so kids kept hacking into the system and doing things they weren't supposed to. In 71, a high schooler managed to collect key author passwords not once, but twice. First, by creating a fake login screen, and then by recording key presses coming from terminals. Today, these methods are called phishing and key logging. Plato 4 would be better protected, but still, letting kids loose to find holes in security became more or less a standard procedure. The youngest hacker was like 12 and sooner or later, many of the kids would get in as lab employees. There, they'd be working with the biggest kid of them all, Rick Blom. He's been present in the story ever since he played the part of the student in the 1961 Plato 1 demonstration, and a decade later he was effectively a system administrator and programmer of the network, challenging hackers. In the late Plato 3 days, he programmed a game called Space War. I believe it was inspired by the MIT classic, but Plato 3 could not actually run that version with its smooth animated graphics, explosions, shots, or even the star, so Blom wrote a different space war. It was a network chase game with one player represented by a cross and the other by a circle. The hyperspace jump and the limited fuel remained. When Plato 4 arrived, space war was ported to the new system, and ended up quite a big hit among the people staying in the lab after hours. The major feature of the Plato 4 space war, the one that makes it a key development, was the big board for finding opponents. It wasn't a forum where you left a message. To play space war, you needed an opponent right here and now. So the big board served as what today would be called a multiplayer lobby. It listed currently running games, and games where someone was waiting for a second player. It had a chat where you could organize a game or simply hang out. Crucially, it wasn't a part of Space War, but rather a tool used to set games up, meaning other games could be created, taking advantage of the same big board. One of the first was Louis Blumfeld's Moon War, which built up on Space War by adding shooting and mountains littering the arena and blocking shots. Then he also made it so that the walls surrounding the playing area made shots bounce off. So it was another arena deathmatch game, kind of like Tank and Western Gun, except it predated both of them. At the time, most players compared the bouncing shots to pinball, and they loved it. It took a lot of passion to play fast-paced games on Plato, because the system wasn't designed to update graphics fast. It never needed it for lessons. However, user inputs were processed fast, so as not to distract students with delays. As the result, high-level space war and moon war play was almost blind. Opponents saw the initial layout of the map, and then started typing to get all the necessary input in, trying to guess what the other player was doing. Moon War was particularly demanding, as to fire a shot you needed to type in the bearing in which it was supposed to be fired. But that was the charm. Moon War got so popular that Don Bitzer was told about it, and he even wanted to use it for his demos. There was just one tiny problem. Big board users were supposed to play under pseudonyms, nicknames, and guess what names kids were picking for themselves in these first online games? 
Yes, all the swear words you know, and then some. So, to prevent embarrassment and or lost sales, Plato system programmers added a filter that automatically replaced any word with naughty bits by a blank space. Say hello to profanity filters in games, stifling your creativity since 1972. And a couple of years later they'd even start banning games on the network, because it wasn't supposed to be used for that, games ate into processing resources, and the number of students grew, and parents were complaining. To survive, many games had to have a veneer of educational value applied to them. Mine teaches you about coordinates, and this one is for learning vectors, and so on. It was a running battle. That's not to say that all the hacks the kids were coming up with to play all day every day did not help plug massive holes in Plato security and user account system. The Big Board Age brought a notable figure into games, Silas Warner. Silas had the worst luck. Whenever he sat down to play Moon War at a terminal in Indiana, no opponents were available. So he tried to create a computer opponent, and this evolved into a game where players programmed their own battle robots without controlling them directly. To succeed at this new robot war game, you had to get into the mind of a player and express their split-second decisions in strict logic, while trying to guess what the enemy robot would be trying to do, so that your robot was the first to detect the enemy, shoot them, and not get wrecked by return fire. Silas would make a commercial version of Robot War for the Apple II in 1981, and it amazed the editors of a freshly founded Computer Gaming World magazine so much, they ran annual contests for user-submitted robots. There was a postal Robot War club too. And of course, games about programming robots to go into battle do come out once in a while still, though at a rate of a couple per decade. In 73, Warner received a call for help. A fellow Plato user in Iowa, John Deleske, needed space. Disk space. To make a game about space. He didn't know how to get storage space of his own, so he was asking Silas because John needed it urgently, since he was supposed to deliver the game as an end-of-term project, and as most end-of-term projects, he was starting on it less than a week before the submission date. We've all been there. So, Warner let Deleske have one lesson's worth of disk space, and that was a unit of measurement on Plato. John wrote his game, survived the term, and then he and Warner made a few changes and adjustments. They called their creation... Empire. Again. We already know Reed College Empire, that was a months-long wargaming role-playing social event. We know Peter Langston's Empire that was a plague and weather simulator with Empire building somewhere in it. We know Walter Bright's Empire, which would be borrowed by Sid Meier as the base for his civilization. Plato Empire was none of that, but according to Brian Deere, and he seems right based on what I know, it was the first computer game that had graphics and yet somehow supported more than two players. It could be played by eight. In the 1973 arcades, there were four-player Pongs, but technically they weren't running on computers. The earliest Empire was a generic space-themed game, but instead of controlling a rocket, you'd be controlling one of eight planets on the screen. On those planets, you could prepare spaceships and keep them around or send them at other players' planets, 
where you had the choice of engaging in a space battle or in a trade, or maybe you try to bomb their planet. You also had the choice of engaging in a battle if your and other players' ships met in deep space between the planets, but you didn't have to, and all combat was automated anyway. Late in 73, after a meeting between the two creators on a pilgrimage to Urbana, Empire was forked. Deleska kept the original game, and Warner made a copy titled Conquest, and from that point on, the two were developed in their own ways. One of the things Silas Warner did was give Conquest six separate universes, game rooms, so that if Universe 1 was full, as it always was, you could go to Universe 2 or 3, or maybe arrange a game with your friends in one of the higher numbers. In the meantime, Deleski brought up a whole team of Plato players and developers back in Iowa, which was great, but he kept running into this stupid issue. He couldn't get a printout of his program code. Plato terminals were not teletypes, they had no printers even as peripheral devices, so the only way to get a hard copy of your code was to send a request to Urbana, where they'd print your lesson and mail it to you. Except every time someone printed Empire's source code, it got borrowed, sometimes permanently. People really wanted to know how it worked and what they could use in their games, and it got so bad, John Deleski resorted to memorizing Empire's source code. All of it. He was working on it too, though at some point the rest of the Iowa team had to pick up the slack when John got, gasp, a girlfriend. Empire was given a better defined theme, Star Trek. Players were split into four factions with different ships, and the game began to grow in scope and complexity, within a few years supporting up to a hundred players. That's when some of them started pining for the good old days of simple interplanetary trade and conquest. So a new version was created, called Empire 4, combining refinements of the latest iterations with the simplicity of the earlier ones. I'm going to quote one sentence from the book to explain how simple Empire 4 was. The game had to keep track of who was in what ship, which ships belonged to which teams, where each ship was located in space, how fast each ship was going, how hot the engines were running on ship, how well each ship's shields were holding, what to display every time you replotted your screen, how many armies were on each planet, which team those armies belonged to, whether a planet was neutral at war or at peace, whether any given player had declared war or peace with another team, where all the photon torpedoes were at any instant, and what direction they were each heading, the lifetime of each torpedo, they self-detonated after traveling a certain distance, whether or not a torpedo had come close enough to an enemy ship to explode, which photon torpedoes were detonated, and how long their detonation explosion icons should be displayed." End quote. So it was real-time space warfare with direct ship control, plus some planetary battles and diplomacy in the background. Pretty nice. And that's not all, by the way, there were other features. Now, collision or proximity detection was the main resource hog, as always, and required inventive programming to keep Empire from exceeding the limits imposed by Plato. By the mid-70s, there were too many students connected to the mainframe, and they were getting in the way of games. On Christmas break 76, Empire players encountered their first, what in modern online games would be called, event. A giant orange carrot thing appeared in space. And then, it started moving around, slowly consuming not just ships and armies, but entire planets, making no distinction between factions. It didn't take long to realize it was indestructible. 
the chat was exploding in panicked messages when someone finally remembered. It was the Doomsday Machine from a Star Trek episode. And they remembered how it was defeated. All 30 players in that particular game, organized in a joint effort, teams be damned, to get rid of the Doomsday Machine. They lined up their ships in front of the wide end of the carrot, and one by one sent it into the mouth, setting their ships to self-detonate. Timing it right was hard, and the hitbox of the weak point was invisible and tiny, but then someone did it, and the machine vanished. It was an incredible, never-seen-before experience. The carrot would appear again a few times, but didn't stick around, as everyone knew how to kill it now. Writing about Empire, Brian Deer does a bit of a naughty thing and doesn't even try to mention one of the games inspired by it. Late in 73, a James Bowery in Iowa, mightily impressed by Empire and under the guidance of Deleski's Iowa team, made his own space game. Except his space wasn't a two-dimensional plane with planets. His space was three-dimensional. James had to look for some reference materials on possible 3D graphics implementations, a fast method of drawing those. In the end, his space had volume, but objects in it looked a bit flat. Instead of managing planets and ships from above, players directly piloted their ships observing the action from the ever-popular first-person perspective, like commanders standing on the bridge. If players from opposing teams met, they battled using phasers and photon torpedoes. So the game was a space-something simulator, and Bowery called it Spasm. Spelled like spasm, often read that way too, but with an I between S and M. Bowery's Spasm was finished around March 74, got some following, but that summer Jim went mad with power, and fueled by girls not liking him and a lot of New Age gobbledygook, deleted the game and rewrote it from scratch. The July 74 iteration put a stop to wanton space combat, and instead almost forced players to trade between stations to make their population happy, and then collect resources to expand and get more resources. Half the old players ditched the game outright. Meanwhile, Silas Warner saw something promising in this, and developed his own take on the concept called Air Race. It was a flight simulator. When you started it up, you were placed in a cockpit and saw not only some abstract terrain, but also the instrument panel, and the game featured a crude physics model for flying. Unfortunately, that was more or less all it had, and it was really slow. However, Air Race was in turn noticed by Brand Fortner, who thought that this could be the beginning of a good game. So he, with the help of his friend, programmed a flight simulator called Air Fight, something Brian Deer suddenly decides to mention in the chapter about Empire. Seriously, it's like there is a big paragraph missing. Air Fight was a team deathmatch air combat game, and its flight physics model was based on papers on Edwin Link's trainers they found in the library. By the way, Edwin Albert Link wasn't doing so well at this time. After flight simulators, he switched to designing submersible vehicles. In 73, one of his subs got caught on a wreck with four people on board. Two were saved, two were not, including Edwin Clayton Link, his son. While Link the Elder was channeling his grief into designing a rescue capsule for submersibles, the Plato community was getting acquainted with a combat flight simulator. 
It wasn't the first dogfighting game on the network. In 73, a guy who just got his pilot's license made a big board top-down aerial combat game titled Dogfight, but it was flat. Airfight was a proper flight simulator, and even though like most 3D stuff on Plato, it was not using many 3D objects you could look at from any angle, it was doing something you can still see in modern games. Levels of detail. Say, imagine you're looking at a wine barrel up close. You can see the wood grain, the dents on the metal bands holding it together, the label saying in case of emergency using a flight simulator. Then you put some distance between it and yourself. You can no longer read the label, see the details, it's just kind of brown with stripes, you're not even sure it's round. Well, asks a game developer, I can make a detailed model of a barrel for my game, but why bother using a good quality model for the ones that are far away? It's just an unnecessary load on the system. So the standard industry practice came to be swapping out high level of detail models for less refined ones when players are far enough. The way it worked in Airfight was that after you picked your plane, loaded up on missiles and took off, you'd see distant planes as dots. Then they turn into either circles or triangles, because that's what the teams were. So the first thing you learned about a bogey was whether they were friendly or a bandit. Then, as the distance between you and other planes closed, you'd see them turning into tiny pictures of planes, getting larger, and there were 14 different plane types. There was a radar display, too, drawn on the instrument panel, tracking planes all around you. It was a sophisticated game back in the day. For comparison, around the same time, in 75, Atari released Pursuit Cabinet, sort of imitating first-person air combat, and it was just about using a joystick to aim and fire at a randomly moving plane on the screen. Airfight was the real simulator deal. It even had a third non-combatant team implemented, perhaps for the same reason modern games offer an observer role. Some people just like to watch. Airfight had many fans, and one of them was working at the University of Illinois Aviation Research Lab around 1976. His master's thesis project there was creating a flight simulator on a PDP-11 mini-computer, though for the screen he was using a Plato 4 plasma panel. The guy's name was Bruce Arthur Artwick, and in 77 he, with his fellow aviation enthusiast Stuart L. Moment, founded their own company, Sublogic. Their first commercial game was supposed to come out by Christmas 79, but there was a delay, so it only shipped in 1980, offered in two versions, one for the Apple II and one for the TRS-80. The title was very, very simple. Flight Simulator. It did exactly what it said on the box. You could enjoy simulated flight over a piece of terrain that featured an airfield and a few mountains. That's it. Well, okay, your propeller-driven plane also had an air fight radar, as you could press a button to declare war, and that made enemy planes and some ground targets appear. But even without that bonus, Nothing like Sublogic's flight simulator was available on the market. The game immediately shot to the top of best games lists, best-selling games lists. That attracted the attention of IBM and Microsoft, who both wanted the big hit to come out for the new IBM personal computer. Artwick chose Microsoft as the partner because he liked the small company atmosphere. When the new game shipped in November 1982, it became the first... Microsoft Flight Simulator. The series still exists today, though its development staff have been completely changed a few times over.
Now that you know Plato was a part of a very thin and barely visible thread connecting Edwin Link's Flight Trainer 1929 and Microsoft Flight Simulator 2020, let's return to the 70s. Another game in that mid-70s burst of Plato's simulation was Panther by John Ido Hefeli and Nelson Bridwell, and it's another one Brian Deere ignores. Panther was a tank simulator, and again, like Airfight, it was a team deathmatch game. Two armies traded shots on a flat battlefield. Well, it wasn't entirely flat. It had five conical mountains placed onto it randomly, so technically every game was different. Maybe the game had started as 3D Moon War, even. Now, as you remember, Plato had government ties, and someone in Pentagon must have been into games. Because in 1977, at the US Army Armor School at Fort Knox, they reportedly got their own tank simulator called Panzer, running on a Plato system. Only I think it was a separate network with a different mainframe, since the Army simulator was given more processing power and was far more detailed, even had smoke shells to help with aiming. The Army gunners needed it. According to a 1979 report I ran into, experiments with real vehicles and in simulators were showing that the guys more or less put in random numbers as estimated target speeds in ballistic calculators. It was a concern, since they were expecting the next generation of tanks to get much faster. These developments offer additional context to a well-known story from 1980. Near the end of the year of Flight Simulator, Atari rocked the arcades with its Battlezone cabinet. When it came to how it played, Battlezone was just tank from five years earlier. Its early working title was first-person tank, even the controls were similar. There was an arena with some obstacles and two tanks, but here one of them was controlled by the game. What really made it stand out was that, just like Sega's Periscope from nearly 15 years earlier, Battlezone nailed the presentation. It used a fashionable first-person perspective, 3D graphics powered by three processors, and a periscope to immerse the player. The 3D graphics of Battlezone were way better than what Plato was capable of. There were cubes littering the battlefield, and the enemy tank had a 3D model that could rotate to accurately reflect its facing, and then it exploded into bits. It was early days still, there wasn't enough processing power to remove all the lines that should have been invisible, so everything was see-through, wireframe, like Flight Simulator 2. Just glowing lines against a pitch-dark background. Battlezone was one of the games that set the standards of the early 80s 3D graphics, which the 1982 movie Tron immortalized. Anyway, soon after the release of Battlezone, military dudes asked Atari if it could make something just like that, but suitable for serious gunnery training. Atari agreed, without asking the main developer of Battlezone, Ed Rothberg. And after crunching on the army's sim for some time, Ed quit both the project and Atari, leaving it all unfinished. Not everyone wants to work for the military. We can now understand that the army was aware of and had computer gunnery simulators at the time, and Atari caught their eye most likely because those cabinets would have been far cheaper than timesharing. Really, the cost of having a plate terminal could run up to almost $20,000 a year. A terminal alone costs six to 10000 and the army dudes needed lots of simulators because they had that report on their tables, hinting that if you replaced gunners with random number generators, you'd possibly see an increase in accuracy. Army Battlezone, as people call it, was supposed to offer multiple target types, including helicopters, 
and you were supposed to identify hostiles before opening fire with any of your four armaments. A machine gun, two types of cannon rounds, and guided missiles. All of that had a ballistic physics model, so aiming was more than just pointing and shooting. The controls were built to imitate the real gunner controls in the Bradley IFV, and Atari would soon use the joystick's design in a number of arcade hits. As for the Bradley trainer as a whole, only two incomplete prototypes were ever built. So, to sum up this section, MIT Space War inspired a simple two-player chase game with an online lobby, that one spawned a number of other similar games, then Empire took everything to the next level of complexity and player accounts, and then in turn it became the inspiration for 3D Star Trek, air combat and tank simulators. I think it's pretty great. By the way, you can still play Plato Empire. It's been updated since then and has a new name, Netrek, N-E-T-R-E-K. There's a dedicated website, netrek.org, and in 2020 they even released a free Netrek app for Apple smartphones and tablets, which apparently comes with computer opponents, though I haven't had the time to try it out yet, sorry. But don't run off just yet, keep listening. There may be another Plato game you could play today. As you may remember, the original Dungeons & Dragons was published in early 1974. The first adaptation of the system on Plato and the first computer role-playing game, period, was supposedly created in the same 1974. And nobody remembers what it was like. Its name was M199H, a bit strange for a Dungeons & Dragons game, but there may be a reason. As I mentioned earlier, disk space on Plato was doled out in lessons. And each lesson had to have a unique name in the system. When a big teaching or research project got its space allotment, it came in the form of lessons with sequential numbers. So there might have been a project whose name was shortened to M199 that was given lessons M199A to H and the programmer with access to it decided that no one was going to notice if they used the last lesson for a bit of fun. Basically, legend has it that Lesson M199H was a hidden D&D-inspired game in 74, which was discovered and the lesson was wiped. I hope one day to see a sequel, M199H2, because a sequel to a role-playing game that no one knows the author of, no one remembers playing and no one's even sure existed, could go some pretty wild places, especially given what was possible in the Plato games people do remember. Fast forward to the summer of 1975. Professor Paul Handler at Illinois ran a project group Population Dynamics, researching and pumping out Plato lessons on population growth. He wasn't programming the lessons himself, though. That was done by Reginald Rutherford III, an ancient relic. Really, he was in his mid-thirties, had a son. But Reginald also got hooked on late-night Dungeons & Dragons sessions, so one day, looking at the fun games kids were making on the system, and still reliving the latest dungeon outing in his mind most likely, this 30-something dad goes, I'm going to make a dungeon-crawling computer game. He had access to the population project with lessons labeled P-Edit 1 through 5, so he appropriated the yet-unused lesson Pedit 5 for his secret passion. 
Unfortunately, or fortunately, Plato had no shortage of obsessive maniacs who literally checked every single lesson to see if anyone was hiding any good stuff. Pedit 5 was discovered, and the word spread. Once you loaded Pedit 5, it greeted you with its proper title, The Dungeon, and an introduction saying the following. It is the year 666, the year of the beast. In the country of Kerom, near the town of Mersad, stands the ruined castle of Raimthing. Beneath the castle lie the terrible dungeons of Raimthing, an incredible maze of rooms and corridors occupied by horrid monsters and piles of ancient treasure. End quote. I wonder if Reggie's son helped him write this. When you finally got into the game and entered the fabled dungeons of something, rain thing, you'd be observing the action from a top-down perspective. The dungeon was presumably dark, so you couldn't see very far, but what you could see was conveniently labelled at the top of the screen. There would be a block labelled Exit, and then you'd enter a section labelled Corridor, and as you explored that, your character would be checking the walls for secret doors, through which you could find more corridor. Or rooms. Hey, the introductory text promised exactly that. What else did it mention? Monsters and treasure? Whether you ran into those was determined randomly. For dealing with the monsters, you had a choice of three options. Fight, escape, or use magic. The first two were pretty random, while magic did add a lot of tactical depth, since, like D&D, the game used Vancean spellcasting and you had to pick which spells to learn and when to use them. Do you want to heal, or get rid of specific nasty monsters instantly, or have increased protection, or always strike first in combat? Of course, the utility of magic depended on the monsters you ran into, and those were random too. Apparently, when Brian Deere interviewed Rutherford in 2014, Reginald laughed remembering how brutal his monster randomizer was. When it came to picking a foe from a list for your hero to trade blows with, there were no safeguards. The very first enemy could turn out to be the strongest monster in the game. Then your character was gone, and you'd lose all your progress. Well, not much at that point. And Pedit 5 was written to make deadlier monsters more likely only if you went deeper into the dungeon, but that risk of getting wiped out in an instant, at any moment, was always there. In spite of that, or maybe because of it, people kept playing, trying their luck to win. You won by reaching character level 6. For that you needed experience points you got from killing monsters or bringing treasures back to the dungeon exit. The treasures, as I've said, were encountered randomly, but not because the game littered the dungeon with them in advance. Quite the opposite. The game recorded which rooms you had explored, and when you walked into a new room, only then it randomly decided whether it would have any loot. Even with the dungeon eventually taking over the Pedit 4 lesson as well, it had enough space to store only 20 player characters, and Rutherford soon came to hate every single one of them. People kept coming to play all the time, and on Plato you could not edit a lesson when someone was using it. 
It was a problem for all popular games on the network. Some authors kicked players out for maintenance or banned them, or made changes early in the morning when no one was around. Now, while the dungeons supported 20 players, it was not a multiplayer game. The players shared the map, a dungeon level or two with 40-50 rooms, but each player was in a separate instance of the map and dealt with their own random monsters and treasure. There was no cooperative play. The dungeon was then discovered by serious people and deleted, then it reappeared again, was deleted again, came back, and this went on for a while, scaring all the players away, because it was impossible to make any kind of progress. Eventually the game was remade by fans, and came back for good under the name Orthank, a Tolkien reference. Among those sick of Pedit 5's on-again, off-again existence were two undergrads in Southern Illinois University, Gary Wisenhunt and Ray Woods. They decided to make their own role-playing game and found that lesson name D&D hadn't been claimed by anyone yet, so they took it for their project. Or maybe their game came first, but the story's fuzzy here. Ironically, D&D would develop to be far less truthful to Dungeons & Dragons than the dungeon. And there was no risk of this game getting deleted, since it was taking up the space given to the university library, and Gary Wisenhunt happened to worm himself into maintaining the library's account, so they could work peacefully. D&D, or The Game of Dungeons, was another top-down perspective affair, and like Pedit 5, it started with a couple of dungeon levels. Plotting them on graph paper and then programming them into the game proved inconvenient, so Wizenhunt and Woods wrote an editor program allowing them to create levels right at the terminal. That sped up the work a lot and let them focus not on just making more levels, but on making good levels. The game of Dungeons was slightly less haha randomly deadly and more challenging but fair. Apparently, the challenge level a player faced was even adjusted based on the amount of gold they carried, which makes the game of Dungeons another 70s game with automatic difficulty scaling. Another feature was an assortment of magic items you could find in the dungeon. Rings that let you levitate over pits, potions that could heal you, or poison you, or turn you into a ghost capable of walking through walls, books that could... explode in your face. However, D&D's real claim to everlasting glory is the fact that it's the earliest game we know of to feature a boss. The big baddie at the end of a level or the game, the one you absolutely have to defeat to win. The boss. D&D's boss was inspired by a popular theme in Dungeons & Dragons. Dragons. It was the Gold Dragon, the ultimate challenge for the heroes who were feeling confident even in the deepest levels of the dungeon. Fell the beast, and you get to grab the orb, a magic trinket it was guarding. Bring the orb back from the dungeon, and you win, entering the annals of history, better known as the game's high-score table. So the game had a whole story arc going, the opening, the build-up, the climactic battle, and the conclusion. And its high-score table may be predating the ones in the arcades. The creators of the game of Dungeons discovered very soon that people were progressing through that story arc way faster than it was expected of them. Was the game broken somehow? Didn't look like it. And yet there were people going just straight for the orb. On a visit to Urbana, the developers saw what was going on. 
Like the dungeon, the game of dungeons randomized the locations of monsters and treasure. But the exploration record for treasure was reset when the player entered or re-entered a level. So what the players were doing was enter a level, see if the Guards of Chance deposited any gold in the starting room within reach, grab it and exit the level. If there was no gold, they just left immediately, never exploring deeper into the dungeon. Then, whether they got anything or not, they immediately turned around and went back in to try their luck again. There was no glory, next to no danger, but they were getting a steady trickle of gold that either provided character-improving experience or could be exchanged in shops for better gear and magic potions to power through the game. I'm getting conflicting reports here, possibly either due to a misunderstanding or the fact that Plato games underwent many changes. And so, many players were just dipping their toes into the dungeon for gold, for hours, for days, the same thing over and over again. Modern players probably know the name of what they were doing. Grinding. Fighting a hundred easy enemies earning you a coin each instead of risking dealing with a monster worth a hundred points. Getting enough experience points to advance to the highest possible level hunting nothing but boars. Grinding. The game of dungeons was not designed with grinding as the intended method of play, it was only something the players invented in 75, but a large number of role-playing games in the following years have been cursed with mandatory grinding. The Urbana-based Plato Network was a constantly changing community. Students were graduating or flunking out every year, so as it happened with many other projects, the original creators of the game of dungeons passed the project on to its biggest fans. Dirk and Flint Pellet. The brothers continued to update and expand the game, adding more original monsters and items and magic spells, taking it farther away from Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, Gary Gygax had never thought of putting in Kitchen Sink as a magic spell for wizards to cast, and Tolkien never had transporters from Star Trek in his books. Tolkien was all about walking and narrating the history of every ruin on the way. But the game of Dungeons threw in more university in-jokes, teleportation devices, and the kitchen sink. This late-edition D&D has been preserved, and you can find footage of it online, it looks pretty neat for its age, and you can even try it out, because there is a modern-day Plato emulator out there at cyberone.org. Of course, giving the game of Dungeons a shot and getting a 1970s experience shouldn't be too hard, since it was a one-player game. Different heroes never interacted. But I'm quite certain that at this point of the episode, you're already expecting more of Plato. Let's crank it up a notch. One of the people who discovered and played all those early role-playing games on a terminal at Iowa State University was a Kevitt Duncan. He liked them, but in 1976 he felt he could make a better one. The thing that annoyed him the most were the maps. Due to the disk space constraints, developers could not offer much more than a few levels of a dungeon. So he programmed a system that could generate more dungeon on the fly, without actually storing it anywhere. He showed it to his friend Jim Batten, they agreed it was a nice system, and started developing a game with it. The name of the game would come to be Moria, another Tolkien reference, which is kind of funny since the guys hadn't read any Tolkien, but they needed a name, and Dirk Pellet, who was also there, suggested it. You may remember that I've mentioned a few Iowa developers before, John Deleske and the rest of the Empire team. They were also there. John had even had his own multiplayer role-playing game project in 74-75 called Dungeon, 
but abandoned it. In 76, Moria and Empire were being worked on on two terminals in the same room, and reportedly these were the most actively used terminals in the entire network. So, what was Moria bringing to the table? For one, the first-person perspective, working pretty much just like in Maze War from the previous episode. Well, except Moria could not draw faraway characters, so you only saw monsters when you were directly on top of them. Also, on Plato, instead of seeing the maze view on the entire display, you'd be peeking at it through a tiny window in the center of the screen, since that was the most Plato could do without slowing down too much. The area around the viewport was taken up by your character statistics, the list of gear they were wearing, the chat, so it wasn't empty. Actually, padding the screen with lists and static images would be a popular way of reducing the load on your computer all the way into the early 90s. I'm not sure to what extent the developers of Moria were aware of Maze War. They might have been, Plato was well connected, and it did have a Maze War, but it was another one of the big board top-down perspective games. Another thing that made Moria stand out, thanks to that bit of code for generating dungeons on the fly, was the sheer size of it. Players started in a wilderness zone, and if they went deeper into it, they could run into dungeon-ish areas called cave, mountain, forest and desert, with 60 levels in each. There was also a secret ocean dungeon, just as big. So Moria offered more than a simple dungeon crawl, it had a whole world full of random danger and treasure. Exploring it, you needed to bring food and water, and you could create temporary camps to store supplies you didn't need that very moment. The developers even put in a special ability to mark a spot in the world, tie a thread, and then you could make the character retrace their steps to it with the press of a button. The world was so big, your hero would even age as you played, and had to retire on hitting 100, which amounted to about 139 hours of playtime per character. Apart from dungeons, the wilderness was connected to another place, the city. Also a sprawling maze of hallways, the city tended to present less danger and more opportunities for shopping. Some of the shops were so good, you could only find them by bumping your face into every single wall, looking for fake ones, hiding secret passages. Once you made it to a shop, you would talk to the shopkeeper and even haggle using plain English. Natural language interface was another popular concept in the mid-70s, we'll see why in a later episode, and Duncan and Batten put a lot of effort into building a library of possible player inputs and how the shopkeeper should understand them. As a catch-all option, they made it so that a word starting with an N was treated as a negative answer, and a word starting with a Y was seen as positive. Soon enough, tired of the gimmick, players switched to throwing Ys and Ns and numbers at shopkeepers. But the greatest feature of Moria was that it, like Daleski's abandoned dungeon, was a truly multiplayer role-playing game a multi-user dungeon, as they'd come to be known a few years later when supposedly the first mod appears. You were no longer a solitary hero, you could run into other adventure seekers, you could trade items between each other, you could chat, and Moria had a neat option to send messages only to the players whose characters were in the same room as yours. Best of all, up to 10 characters could be united in a group, 
one character would be its designated guide, and wherever the guide went, the rest of the group would shuffle along with them. If they ran into a monster group, every member would enter the fight. This was great because it brought back the cooperative spirit of the tabletop games and made more vulnerable specialized character classes viable. Working with a group mechanic were the city guilds. A character could join a guild, and that granted them special bonuses and powers. So a balanced group would have heroes from the guilds that taught how to fight better, someone from a guild that let them heal every teammate at once, and for the worst case scenario, they'd have a wizard guild member to teleport everyone back to the city. In 1977, another game sprung up. Oubliette, created by Jim Schweiger and his team. Oubliette continued Moria's cooperative style of play and even made it more convenient by adding tavern locations, designated meeting spots. Now it was really easy to gather your party and venture forth. The party would be a bit jumpy though, since Oubliette came with a twist to teleportation. Various accidents in the process could happen as far back as D&D, but they were usually limited to losing some of your health or missing the destination a little. In Oubliette, errant magic could place your character straight into a solid wall. And that was a fate worse than death. Literally. At least a character killed in battle could be somewhat recovered later, the gear on their body certainly, corpses remained in the dungeon. But a stoned character, as they called it, was just... Gone. Completely lost. Other risky ventures in Oubliette included games of chance. Your character could go play some blackjack or poker or bet on racing roaches. You could also spend some time optimizing your equipment. Armor, gloves, a shield or maybe a weapon in both hands, boots, a robe and wizard hat or a helmet. The choice of character classes was massive, and in addition to the boring D&D ones, you could be a ninja, a samurai, a valkyrie, a courtesan, or a raver. However, all classes, apart from peasant, had prerequisite statistics, and you definitely couldn't pick some of them at the start. You'd have to level up a bunch in a simpler class, improve the attributes, and then switch to a more powerful advanced class that made your survival in the tougher areas of the game more likely. Also, as a safety measure, you could hire a... hireling in the city to tag along with you and help out in fights. The magic system had been revamped, and instead of using D&D spells, Oubliette offered spell names composed of syllables explaining their effect. You could tell at a glance that this one would heal a little, and that one would damage a lot and affect a group, and it sounded like weird incantations too. Around 7980, after more than three years in development, another Plato classic entered the stage, another collective effort. Initially it was called Darkmoor, but for the public release, the creators changed the name to, surprise, a Tolkien reference, Avathar. Then they got cold feet and changed it to a less copyright-infringing avatar. Now, why would these students do that for their amateur, non-commercial game? Well, in the late 70s, as the whole Plato system was being commercialized by Control Data Corporation, they were not just selling bare mainframes and terminals, but lessons too. To make it a bit more legit, a procedure was created allowing the authors of lessons, games and other programs to get officially recognized as copyright holders, and if they were lucky, even earn royalties of sales. 
Of course, those were the 70s, people still worshipped hardware and put zero value into content creators' work, so the patent royalties trickling down to the inventors of the plasma displays was solid, while those dripping to the authors of the top computer lessons in the world never quite rose above insulting. What was I talking about? Ah, yes, Avatar. Avatar was huge. It supported up to 60 simultaneous players, which might not sound so impressive compared to modern, massively multiplayer online role-playing games, but it was quite overwhelming in 79. They even had to have a team of volunteer operators working on the game behind the scenes at all times. They were dealing with player issues, creating new content, fixing problems in the old content. One of the issues they were facing a lot were teleportation misfires. In Avatar, like in Oubliette, you could get stoned, but a divine intervention, that is, someone with administrator privileges, could unstone you and save you a lot of trouble. That was great news, since in Avatar, if the leader of a party teleported the entire party and missed, every single member would get stoned. Death came suddenly and swiftly in those early role-playing games. As I mentioned earlier, the student community was always shifting, flowing, and most were only around to play for a few years. So, imagine you've been playing for a while, you've got good characters in a few games, with excellent gear, and you're about to move on and lose them forever. But around you there are also new people, who only just now discovered the true pleasures of Plato, and they're jealous of your character's equipment. Sure, you could give it to them, but it took time and many a narrow escape to collect this hardware. You'd be doing them a great service. Was that? 20 bucks. Clever kid can get a hint, but you need to teach them about the real going rates of magic helmets and flaming swords around here. So yeah, it started with Oubliette in 1977. Players paying real cash for virtual items. It was never done officially or even openly. In fact, if administrators learned of a real money trade, they'd delete the items exchanged in it. But it was being done in Oubliette, Avatar and other games where exchanging items was an option. In short order, this spontaneous virtual economy branched off into a professional league. Savvy players would create a new character for sale, go grind in a few good spots they knew to get to a respectable experience level, loot some decent equipment from treasure chests, flip the character for cash, and then do it again. That's the precursor of the modern-day gold farming in online games. And at one point, operators discovered that a junior system programmer employed at the lab was using his position simply to add powerful items to his character's inventory to sell them. When they went to look at the game records to see where he had gotten the loot from, he pulled off some movie-grade hacking stunts, deleting the records as the operators were looking at them, deleted the backups, but by then they knew who it was, so the guy ran off and never showed his face at the lab again. Wild. Wild still is that these early computer role-playing games on a half-forgotten-today system absolutely played a part in shaping the games of the following decades. Over at Cornell University in New York State, a couple of Plato terminals were not worshipped round the clock as portals into the future in the late 70s, but a few people did get sucked into the world of role-playing games. Among them were Robert J. Woodhead and Andrew C. Greenberg. Both were inspired by the Plato games to try and create some like them for home computers, 
And so they independently started to program their own for the Apple II. Then they learned of each other's projects and decided to pull their effort into a single role-playing game, Greenberg focusing on the design and Woodhead dealing with programming. Initially, they tried to write the thing in BASIC, but it was so abysmally slow, the project had to be converted to Pascal. The finished game was released in 1981 through publisher Sirtec, co-founded by Woodhead and a Norman Sirotec. The name of the game was... Wizardry, Proving Grounds of the Mad Overlord. The highly successful commercial release of Wizardry ticked off the Plato community something fierce. Sirtec ripped off Oubliette, they declared, and I've even seen a claim that some of Oubliette's source code was directly replicated in Wizardry. And Woodhead was burning through a thousand dollars a month to pay for Plato access during the game's development. Sure, he says it was to play Empire. But something did have to change. An Apple II game could not rely on a network. So there was a choice to make. Either keep one player's character, essentially going back to how the game of Dungeons played, with a solo hero doing everything, or keep the tactical cooperative spirit of role-playing games, keep the team of different classes working together, but lose a direct correlation between the player and a single adventurer. For now, Wizardry went with option number two. The player was like an incorporeal manager, building and guiding a party of heroes to conquer a treacherous dungeon. Just like Moria, Oubliette and Avatar, Wizardry used a simple first-person 3D view and showed you pictures of enemies only when you randomly ran into them. The dungeon was as deadly as the ones in Plato games, and you could not save your game progress while in its holes. But if your party died, Wizardry would automatically save that outcome immediately and force you to create a new group. However, inheriting a Plato feature, your new team of adventurers could run into the remains of the ones that had perished under your wise management earlier, and maybe even recover some gear from their bodies. Inherited from the ancestors was also the ironic, sarcastic and sometimes referential writing of the game. Two key characters in the plot were named Trevor and Redner. That's Robert and Andrew, spelled backwards. So Plato did shape wizardry, and we'll leave it at that until the 80s season, since the Wizardry game series is one of the foundations not just of Western computer role-playing games, but also of quite a few Japanese ones. They loved the early wizardries in Japan. The syllabic spell-naming system from Oubliette, Wizardry Borrowed, is still used today in the Megami Tensei franchise, and maybe even in Final Fantasy too. In fact, today Wizardry itself is a Japanese franchise, since Norman Sirotek passed it over to a Japanese company in 2006, after Sirotek had gone belly up. But that's a story for another time. By the way, Wizardry wasn't the only Oubliette-inspired game of 81. Another one, Nemesis, featuring a lone hero exploring a dungeon, had the misfortune of being released for the CPM operating system that fell out of common use soon after. The second role-playing game released for CPM, also in 81, was OrbQuest, an adaptation of the game of Dungeons, or D&D. But D&D had gotten earlier ports too. Say, in 79, a cut-down version, Dungeon of Death, came out for the Commodore PET. Going back to Plato, not all role-playing games there were about swords and sorcery. Around 76, Eric Witt, aged 14, 
with his friend Nick Bolland, started on a futuristic first-person game where players equipped their characters with various guns. And you'd know they had a gun, because you could see the barrel of the gun sticking out at the bottom of the 3D view. It was still a role-playing game with character statistics and experience points and magic spells in the form of thermonuclear warheads, but that gun sticking out at the bottom was such a lovely touch. The game, titled Future War, was released to the public in 77. The plot premise of Future War was that your character, a Special Forces member, got sucked into a time warp used by evil Dr. Brain to flood the Earth of 1978 with monsters from a future post-apocalyptic Earth. Your hero ended up in the year 2020 and had to brave radioactive waste, fires, raw sewage and landmines, making it all sound a bit like um, Eastern Ukraine. Future War had really nice graphics for the day thanks to a trick. It was a common practice on Plato to put all the data describing the graphics in your game along with the program code of the lesson and load them all into memory together. I mean, how else are you going to do it? Well, these two high schoolers put all their program code into one lesson and all the fancy monster graphics into a different one. And the first lesson would dynamically load specific images from the second only when they were needed. This let the guys focus on the graphics and make more of them, adding many monster types, special effects, and some of them were even animated. They also had an eerie mist indicating that some unspecified enemies were waiting for you in the maze ahead, so it was pretty rare for a player to run into an ambush. Blasting away at monsters with an array of guns and healing with first aid kits, players would get their characters from the safish surface of the 20-level dungeon all the way to Dr. Brain's lab and ultimately to hell where they fought demons. So, in 1977, Plato had a game which lets you fight demons in hell in first-person view with your gun sticking out at the bottom of the screen. Hmm. Some of you might find this familiar. Kind of similar to one of the games that defined the 90s. Doom. In 1997, the developers of Doom were asked directly whether they were inspired by Future War, and one of them, John Carmack, said they'd never played any Plato games. And you know, I'm going to believe, John, since the development of Doom is documented fairly well, and the first thing you take away from it is that when they started, not one member of the team had the slightest idea of what the final game was going to be like. But you could try to check it out for yourself. In 2017, the original creators of Future War released a restored version for that Cyber1.org emulator, based on a complete printout of the program code, and an almost complete printout of the Monster Graphics lesson from 1979. Never throw away your game code. Another Plato RPG doing its own thing was created around 1980 in Venezuela, where a CDC employee Mark Johnson was stuck with a few terminals, a dedicated line connecting him to a mainframe in Minneapolis, and nothing to do. The reason he was in Venezuela was that CDC was trying to pitch the system to corrupt oil-rich nations. They had also tried Iran, but that fell through when the revolution came, and CDC employees there, including Mark Johnson, had to evacuate. 
Now Mark was in Caracas, safely bored, playing some games, naturally, and letting his kids come over and explore Plato lessons. One of the elementary maths lessons featured a steam train, and Mark got a flash of inspiration. He'd make a game set in the Wild West. Its name was Dry Gulch, and I don't think this one has been preserved. The dungeon of Dry Gulch was a gold mine next to a town. The town, instead of a simple shopping street, was a proper settlement with a town hall, the sheriff's office, a bank, a saloon, a graveyard, and an assay office where you went to appraise your gold or chunks. The town government positions were filled by players themselves. There were regular elections, you could run for mayor. When you left the town for the mine, you'd have to stock up on supplies, since the game tracked not only how much weight your character was carrying, but also their hunger and thirst. If you wanted to carry more supplies, you could buy a mule in town, but the mule would have its own hunger and thirst. In the mine, you would not run into some evil monsters. No, mostly you'd have encounters with wild animals. When you met one, you had a few options. You could fight the animal, very straightforward. You could run away, straightforward but in the opposite direction. If running was not going to cut it, you could try to evade the animal. Then there was the option to ignore the animal, just stand still, indifference made flesh. Maybe the spider or bear were having a good day, maybe they didn't care about you. Of course, the option everyone had to try out at least once was to swear at the animal. Yes, let loose a stream of weaponized profanities at a rat and it might leave deeply offended. I hope you feel good about yourself. Another Plato role-playing oddity, titled Bugs and Drugs, was developed by medical students. Bugs and Drugs took place in a hospital, where instead of monsters you'd be assaulted by nasty microorganisms causing different diseases. To defeat them, you had to use the correct antibiotics and other drugs. So I suppose it was an educational role-playing game, although this one has also been lost. One of Bugs and Drugs developers, Paul Elfille, programmed another game in 78, which many of you may have seen or even played without realizing it was a Plato classic. He created a card game. Remember, in the late 70s, putting playing cards on the screen was kind of impressive. The game was all about moving cards around and turning random piles into sorted stacks, so it was a solitaire puzzle. But like many other Plato games, it had a high score table and it tracked users' winning streaks, so people kept coming back for more. What was particularly appealing was that there was no hidden information and the random piles of cards almost never presented unwinnable games. The game had predecessors and was most likely based on one by C.L. Baker, which was described by Martin Gardner in Scientific American in 1968. Yes, the same guy whose article inspired Grand Track 10, too. Paul Elfille read the piece as a kid, made some tweaks to the system, modified it over the years playing with real cards, and then implemented it on Plato under the name Free Cell. The computer version even checked if there were any possible moves left, and when there was only one, made it automatically. Soon, CDC officially published Free Cell and added it to the library of games it sold with Plato. I suppose they liked it because the game was pretty and didn't ask much of the system. The players were staring at the screen most of the time, thinking. 
In the 80s, the CDC edition was discovered at the University of Alberta by a Jim Horn. Jim liked it so much that he made a home computer version and released it in 1988 on various bulletin boards of the time, only asking the people who liked the game for a $10 donation. He kept getting $10 checks in the mail for years. Lucky guy. The same 1988, Jim joined Microsoft. In the early 90s, the company sent out a memo to its employees asking them for some games so that it could put them in an entertainment pack to boost the sales of the then-current versions of the Windows operating system, which was ugly, slow, a massive resource hog, and so no one wanted to use it. The games had to come clean of any copyright issues, and Jim Horn was able to convince his bosses that something like Free Cell had been described in the books, before CDC published it. Free Cell was one of the titles picked for the pack, but no one got paid any money for the games. Microsoft let Jim have 10 shares of stock off the roll in the office, and that was that. After the initial entertainment pack release, FreeCell came pre-installed with Windows NT and Windows 95, and that's when people noticed it. Paul Alfilli certainly noticed it, and was shocked. He got in touch with the University of Illinois about the copyright, but no one wanted to bother with it there, so he let it go. FreeCell remained a standard game in Windows up until Windows 8, when Microsoft decided it was too cool to offer free games, and users should troll the poorly curated online store for simple entertainment. Though, given the regular news about Windows, maybe they should consider making a new entertainment pack. And there is another game familiar to a broader modern audience that got its start on Plato. In December 1979, Brody Lockhart, a Stanford student, had a nasty fall during his gymnastics practice. It resulted in a severe spinal injury that left him paralyzed from the neck down. He spent the following nine months in hospital learning how to breathe again. Usually that would leave a person extremely isolated, but Brody had been touched by the orange glow before, and he asked if he could, maybe, have a plated terminal in the hospital? Luckily, there was a person willing to provide that, so Brody was able to get online and take part in community life. While that was going on, a member of the hospital staff introduced Brody to a piece of game hardware I haven't mentioned yet. A 19th century Chinese variation of playing cards, mahjong tiles. Like cards, these tiles can be used for a variety of games, gambling, and puzzles. Brody was encouraged to try out the latter, the turtle puzzle. It was a turtle-shaped pile of tiles in which you had to find and remove pairs of identical ones, trying to clear them all away. A children's game. And then... Brody Lockhart got an idea. What if he turned this puzzle into a game on Plato? He knew how to program in Tutor, and the screen was perfect for drawing tiles. He got to work, carefully copying the Chinese characters and coding. Now, he was still paralyzed, that would not change, unfortunately, so all the work was done one key press at a time, with Brody using a stick he controlled with his mouth. But he wanted to make a Mahjong solitaire puzzle on Plato, and he did. A really nice thing about his game, apart from great graphics, was the interface. 
Most of the games I've talked about today had extremely crude controls requiring fast number input and using most of the keyboard for various features. The Mahjong game simply wanted you to touch a tile on the screen and then touch a matching tile to remove them both. It was very streamlined, very modern, very accessible, and definitely not the way most game interfaces worked in 1980. After being discharged from the hospital, Brody Lockhart was enrolled into a program allowing him to have a play-to-terminal at home. He finished his game in 1981, wanted to port it to a personal computer, but none offered a screen matching the resolution required. Of course, Brody also continued his studies at Stanford, got a master's degree, and in April 1985 was hired full-time as a programmer at the university. That's when he bought himself a shiny new Apple Macintosh, which we'll talk about way later. The display of the Mac was almost as good as a Plato one. The same year, Brody got into contact with Brad Freger, a producer at a computer game company Activision I'll be introducing this season. Freger let Lockhart know that if he had a game, Activision might want to publish it. So Brody began to port his puzzle to the Mac. He was helped in this by two things. There was a Plato Terminal emulator for the Mac, so he could connect to the system and copy his old graphics. And he had a Personics Headmaster device, letting him control the cursor on the screen by moving his head, a step up from the stick, though he used that as well. Around Christmas 85, Freger was shown the game and allowed to take a copy. At home he introduced his wife to it, and then found her still playing at 5 a.m. He showed it to his colleague and got a similar story. Yeah, the game was worth publishing. Frege's suggestion was to release it under the name Addiction, but everyone else thought it was stupid, and the actual title ended up being Shanghai. Either because it was a Chinese word they knew, or because that's where Mahjong tiles were probably invented. Brozy Lockhart signed a contract with Activision, naturally rigged heavily in company's favor. The game was a hit and Lockhart became famous, but didn't actually see any royalties for years. It kinda worked out in the end. Today, Mahjong Solitaire is a fairly generic type of casual games, they no longer become bestsellers, but can still be as addictive as the original, painstakingly programmed by a very determined young man with a stick. It's hard to believe, but this episode has mostly been another story of the 70s. The story in which the year Pong was introduced in California, over in Illinois, the first profanity filter appeared in a game. The story in which, as the arcades were full of lines to tank cabinets in 75, some people were playing a first-person tank combat game over a network. The story in which, as some were dazzled by TV Dazzler, others were exploring dungeons in a new online role-playing game, Oubliette. The story in which, while space invaders conquered the world, someone out there was selling a virtual sword for real money. How did this happen? Corporate suits or octogenarian academic committees could have never created any of this. It was lots of young people programming whatever they thought was fun or necessary. Why were they allowed to do it? Because Donald Bitzer found it was a great way to do things, many bright kids got hooked on games, and would stay after graduation to work at the lab. 
In a way, Plato became another implementation of what Seema Papert was trying to do with programmable robots. Only here, kids were learning programming to make exciting games. Papert's disciple, Alan Kay, loathed time-sharing and thought that every child should have their own tablet computer. But had he paid attention to Plato in the 70s, he would have learned so much more about child-computer interactions. Brian Deere has a chapter in the book dedicated to the hopeless addicts of Plato spending nights at the lab, letting the grades slip, flunking out. A 1982 issue of the High Times magazine, specializing in you-can-guess-what, ran a piece on Plato and the kids unable to stay away from the orange glow. Many key game developers I've mentioned today either got expelled from college or came very close to it. Many got programming jobs in the end, so the time was not entirely wasted. And then Plato failed. Well, not immediately and certainly not for a lack of trying. By mid-70s, Bitzer had a new vision. A million terminals all over the world, hundreds of mainframes connected, distributing the load between each other. He finally saw that education was just one of the things his network could be used for. When he laid it all out at a 1975 conference with Papert, Minsky, people from Xerox, everyone was astounded. But none of these big figures and labs ended up cooperating. The egos involved were too big. CDC, which started to commercialize Plato in the 70s, was also working on spreading it, say, by making cheaper terminals. In 75, its engineers developed Information Systems Terminal with a regular CRT display, an Intel AT80, and optional expansions you could plug into it. Yes, a personal computer in all but name, and it cost $1,300, so not that far above what the homebrew computer makers were just about to ask for their toys. Of course, the corporate marketing department priced it at $8,000, so that opportunity was lost. Meanwhile, at Urbana, they made Plato 5 terminals with built-in Z80 processors, but those units didn't come cheap either. There was also a CDC prototype of a briefcase terminal with a built-in plasma screen and a modem for connecting by phone anywhere, and a keyboard on which each key was a plasma display capable of showing characters in whatever language you were typing in. A high-tech 70s netbook. That never went anywhere either. The commercialization of Plato software, I've mentioned earlier, reduced authors' willingness to share their ideas too. What if someone takes the lesson you're working on, finishes it, and gets it copyrighted before you? Most lessons at that point were low quality, written by programmers instead of teachers, but still, they got greedy and paranoid. In 77, when the home computer industry only started to look serious, Paul Tanzar calculated how much processing power Apple II had and how much Plato was giving its users on average. An Apple II was 10 times more powerful. And it had color graphics and sound. Good news for all the people writing flight simulators and wizardries, bad news for Plato's prospects in education. Sure, personal computers were not networked, but most people didn't see the point yet. The social aspect of computers was not what was selling them, even science fiction completely failed to envision that, so what if there's no connection? In the 70s, Plato had more users than the ARPANET, but most just used it for the classes. Only 1% were terminally online, completely absorbed into chats and games. 
The parallel network run by CDC was very strict, corporate, commercial, nobody in education liked them. Maybe that allowed the company to get major deals with airlines, financial institutions and power companies, but personal computers continued to eat into Plato's market share. Now, one guy at CDC managed to emulate a functional terminal on an Apple II, so a cheap home computer could be used to connect, but the notion of going from selling vastly overpriced hardware and lessons to selling Plato as a service to everyone was completely lost on the management. Another missed opportunity. In the mid-80s, Don Bitzer had his own plan for a next-generation system they called NovaNet that would work like Plato on a global scale using satellites for communication. All while the lab was running out of money. There were accusations of misappropriation of fun, the University of Illinois became a paranoid pit of vipers, and in the summer of 89, Bitzer resigned, while CDC sold off its part of Plato piecemeal. Later, at Illinois, it was decided that the lab where Plato had been born no longer served any useful function, and they would start shutting it down in 1993. Ironically, the same year, a few minutes walk away from the lab, at the National Center for Supercomputing Applications, two students, Eric Beiner and Mark Anderson, created Mosaic, the first web browser. The internet we know was starting to take its modern form, writers next door, the home of the first online community, was being erased from existence. Over a few years, terminals were gathered and destroyed. The building was given to another department. The end. Well, except for all the things Plato influenced, we'll be back to flight simulators and wizardry and the spectacular career of Silas Warner. The structure of Plato's discussion boards in a roundabout way had an influence on the design of the well, the whole earth electronic link, a popular early conferencing bulletin board, a forum. That one was launched in 1985, co-founded by Stuart Brand, the organizer of the first video game tournament. It's not mentioned in the book at all, but one Atari guy, Mike Ober, said in a 2010 interview that the company's personal computer division had had a Plato Terminal 2. They snuck it in past the management, CDC was like next door. And the terminal was connected up, and the people were addicted to some jet fighter game. Most likely air fight. So maybe we'll see some 3D flying games coming from Atari too. There is also this guy, Dr. Michael Allen, who was trying to develop an easier method of creating lessons at CDC, easier than even the tutor language. The project was ultimately finished outside of CDC in the late 80s, and became known and popular as AuthorWare. After a bunch of mergers, the company selling AuthorWare arrived at the name Macromedia in the early 90s, and a few years later it bought FutureWave software that had a nice product for creating lightweight graphics and animation, perfect for the internet. Macromedia released it as Macromedia Flash. Many an annoying banner and slightly less annoying game were made in Flash. La Molle Industria made its political satire games in Flash. Flash was discontinued in 2021, but the memory lives on. For now. People forget things. They forgot Plato, and it's a system that connects so many dots you can't possibly have the full picture without it. 
Fortunately, over the past decade, a lot more information about Plato began to surface, thanks to Brian Diaz and other researchers' efforts. His book I've been referring to a lot, The Friendly Orange Glow, The Untold Story of the Rise of Cyberculture, came out in 2017, and it's just excellent 500 pages of narrative based on interviews collected over several decades. I focused on games, but there's more in the book. The lessons, the rival projects Plato killed off, a visit by a drunk Leonard Nimoy, guys pretending to be a girl in chats, all the online dating, and Plato Pornography Network with related touchscreen games. Oh yeah, the only colors available were orange and black, but they did it. Sorry, internet, you didn't invent that either. Brian Deere runs a website on the subject too, platohistory.org. Do check it out, because it includes material that did not make it into the book. There's always more. And that's where years ago I learned of another thing Plato did first. Its sign-on screen had an analog clock. The shape of that clock changed depending on the date. It would turn into a heart for the Valentine's Day, a turkey for Thanksgiving, and so on. And it was very similar to what Google is doing with doodles. Somehow Google got a patent on doodles in 2011, because apparently decorating your front porch is a notable invention. For all their original pioneering work in the 70s, the Plato community was making and playing something we've seen over and over again. Space games. Empire was one of the greatest hits. What on earth is going on out there in space? Well, let's ask our today's friend Hell9000 to open the airlock and check it out for ourselves next time. This has been Computer Game Evolution. Thank you for listening and for donating. And if you're listening to this podcast, do get Brian Deere's book. It's right up your alley.